We're going to continue with our Effective Kingdom Prayer Series, and uh, we were actually in the middle of 3F when we ended, so flip your 3F over to the back side, and we, were, uh, we had talked about, in fact, go on the front side for just a minute, we had talked about the reality of spiritual warfare, the fact that uh, we are living in a time when um, uh, there's an additional handout you have that's a... a some excerpts from chapter two of Francis McNutt, who was a Catholic priest, got baptized in the spirit, has a mighty healing and deliverance ministry. I know that he left the priesthood and he's married. I don't know if he's still considered Catholic or Protestant, but he has powerful healings and, and training and, and, uh, and uh, gifts of the spirit and deliverance and so forth. And a, and a very fine book and a very fine man. Um, all his books are worth reading. Uh, he basically starts that little handout you have by saying 200 years ago, we wouldn't have to talk about the reality of demons. But, um, and we're in kind of an ironic place right now in that if you talk among evangelicals or reform people, those who are committed to the scripture being the inerrant word of God, uh, they all would say, we believe in demons in theory, but many, many Christians today have never cast a demon out or had a demon cast out of them or helped with a deliverance team. And if you, uh, as we went through uh, the, the scriptural record from the Old Testament uh, to the New, we talked about how the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, highlight seven sort of spectacular incidents where Jesus cast out demons. But many times our first few readings of the Gospels, we might miss the number of times that it says he cast out of demons out of many or multitudes or everyone present. And so um, uh, the, the, ver the fact is, is that Jesus' ministry was about 25% uh, casting out demons. And he did not envision a gospel of the kingdom that didn't have power to deliver. The Christian view is that you are, you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit uh, coming to you through the Savior, coming to you through his cross, through his erection, or, or resurrection, through his uh, ascension, uh, through his glorification, and through the coronation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as Samuel did on Saul and David pours down the king and into the earth below. And that was called Pentecost. And the, the New Testament never, never envisioned a gospel where you're theoretically accepting that in an abstract way that you're a sinner and that you need a little guidance or help. The, the, the Bible basically says you have three types of enemies, and they are all inextricably intertwined. They work in, interconnected in, in ways that can't be separated. In other words, in uh, uh, and they are insurmountable by human effort. So you need to, as Paul, Paul uses the word rescued or delivered, half the English translations say rescued, half say delivered in several places like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Galatians 1 through 4. He says you've been delivered, or some translations say rescued from this present evil age. And the, the point of the real gospel is that your enemies are insurmountable by any kind of psychology, therapy, self-help, 
performance-based efforts. I remember before I was a Christian, I was always going to try to do better. You know, I was sort of a problem kid in a lot of trouble, and I was going to try to do better, but I just couldn't. All my efforts to do better always failed, and uh, I needed a Savior. Your three enemies include uh, what some people call the sin nature, uh, the Calvinist called total depravity, the Catholic Church calls original sin, but it's more uh, like I was taught when I was raised Catholic that uh, kind of a kid's version of original sin, which is that you have a black mark on your soul. But actually the ancient teaching of the Catholic Church is it's way more than that. It's that you have this propensity, you're made in the image of God, but you have this propensity toward evil. So though you have a sense of justice and righteousness, your justice and righteousness sense are twisted. You're hopelessly self-righteous, and you're uh, hopelessly shallow, prideful, greedy. Uh, you, all men are liars, and that includes women. I, I once talked to a young guy that read that verse, and he thought that everyone of the male gender was liars. Uh, unfortunately, all the women are liars, too. And, uh, you know, we, we, our situation is hopeless apart from Christ. And we need a Savior who has resurrection reigning power. And it needs to be more than a theoretical exchange. You need to have testimonies of God's power changed me. I was bound by fears of man, but I, I'm not anymore. I was bound by greed, but I'm not anymore. I was bound by lust, but I'm not anymore. And uh, it's it's not just a member... Uh, you know, some kind of self-help, moralistic, therapeutic kind of thing. It's the power of the resurrection coming to you. Now, I fully understand that there are areas in the Christian life where God uh, sets you free progressively over time, but it needs to be happening. It, you, you need to be being sanctified. There are other areas where God gives you a, a dramatic deliverance like he did the Israelites right away. You know, in my own life, uh, I was a drug addict, and I struggled about six months, and then all of a sudden God broke through in certain ways in my life. It was gone. It's been 40 years. I've never thought about going back or wanted to go back or anything. There's been other areas that have been a lifelong struggle. If you could have told me at 17 years old when I came to Christ and I weighed 113 pounds and I was five foot 11 inches tall, that I was uh, that that uh, gluttony was going to be a lifelong struggle, I would have said, "Are you kidding me? Uh, you know, I could eat a cow and still not gain weight." Well, your metabolism changes as you age, and and you encounter different problems. But you, but apart from the power of His Holy Spirit, you, it, your enemies are insurmountable. One is your sin nature. You can't even want to stop running from God and come to Christ apart from his grace. Two is, of course, the world system. And, it, you know, Paul calls it in Galatians 1.4, says he rescued us from this present evil age. And three is there, there Satan has a kingdom of satanic angels and demons, and, uh, and you cannot do anything to deliver yourself apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus came, and all through his ministry, he demonstrated the present reality of the kingdom, and he delivered people from these things. He said in Matthew 12, 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, 
then know that the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's not just, it's some future thing. So let's turn over now. That's enough review for those who missed the first part. And uh, let's turn over to the geography of spiritual warfare. We got through the first three of these points. Uh, uh, spirit, there are principalities and powers, satanic angels that are in heavenly places, and they rule geographical areas. They rule nations. The, you know, the prince of the power of Persia is mentioned in Daniel 9. They rule, they rule subcultures, cultures. They rule neighborhoods. And I don't know whether to put, uh, put this under point D, human beings or heavenly places, but demonic spirits have great influences on families. It's what is known as familiar spirits. And uh, there is such a thing as generational curses, and it's, it's uh, something that, frankly, you need to know some things about that and deliverance and so forth, because we were all adopted into God's family. And I love people who adopt children. But you need to understand when you adopt children that you need to bring them out of whatever, uh, whatever spiritual inheritance that, it, that is not healthy that was over them. And impart to them the power of a of a of a godly spiritual inheritance. So let's look. We stopped at human beings, the last geographical place that we find spiritual warfare. And again, the heavenly places in the geographical areas uh, tend to be uh, the the satanic angels. The mindsets of men, cultural and individual. If they're cultural, they tend to be satanic angels. If they're individual, they tend to be demonic spirits. Uh, but there is uh, a, a, a demonic spirit is a liar, in, uh, a, a lying spirit. Okay, so um, Satan's the father of lies. So when you uh, when you deal with the whole uh, subject of um, of of false knowledge raised up against in false religions and false philosophies, humanism, whatever false thing that's contrary to Christ, uh, it is both something that needs to be conquered by intellectually understanding. We need great people who do apologetics. We need great scholars of the faith that, that, that open people's eyes to the truths of the gospel and there's different branches or types of apologetics, evidential apologetics, presuppositional apologetics. If you haven't read some on both of those types of apologetics, I would really encourage you to do so. Evidential would be guys like Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter or Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ or N.T. Wright's. Uh, if, you, if you really want to tackle that, he has like a 3,000-page uh, book on the, uh, the reality of the resurrection or whatever. I haven't read it. Uh, I like the little books. My wife's probably, uh, she likes the big books. Um, <laughs> I like the books that just cover it uh, in 100 pages or something. And then, anyway, the last place of geography of spiritual warfare is human beings. People have demonic spirits. Um, now, the first thing I want to, to make us understand about this is the there's some major misconceptions about that because of some very poor translations in English Bibles. Uh, we are living in, the, in a time period where the quality of English translations it surpasses any quality 
of translations that any people group has ever had on the face of the earth. When we're talking about our preference between the English standard and the New American standard or such things, we're talking about very minute <laughs> differences. Uh, of course, it is always very helpful to compare translations, uh, especially if you don't know Greek, because anytime uh, a word is translated three or four or five different ways, it, it's an indication that it's, uh, that it's a rich word full of more meaning than one English word can give it. But when it comes to the whole realm of demons, unfortunately, the King James Version used the phrase demon possess wherever demonizai is, is uh, expressed. And that is a terrible translation. And unfortunately, with the concept of dynamic equivalence, um, the idea is to make the Greek sound acceptable to English ears. So almost all English translations have, have uh, continued that with the exception of two of the more literal translations. There are basically three uh, translations on the market that are a philosophy called literal equivalence instead of dynamic equivalence. One is the New American Standard, which unfortunately translates that word demon-possessed, which is very wrong translation. Uh, secondly is the English Standard uh, version, which is also an, a literal equivalence, a very, very good translation that translates it demon oppressed. Uh, the only translation that really kind of gets it right is the Young's literal translation, which translates it uh, de demoniacs or demonized. And here's why that's important. Um, the entire English speaking world has been set back in the understanding of what Jesus and the apostles did by that unfortunate concept. Possession is a, a term in, used in a branch of theology called soteriology, which isn't that as fancy as it sounds. It's the doctrines of salvation. If you take our systematic theology class, which we run every two years, we'll be starting up again in somewhere between January and March, the third round of it. Um, you'll want one of the later sections in the class is the doctrines of salvation or soteriology. So it gets down to this, as Jesus made clear in John chapter 8. If you are not born again, you are of your father, the devil. But you, that means you're owned by him. But listen carefully, that does not necessarily mean you have a lot of demonic spirits. I have known lots of non-Christians who were raised in godly homes, who, who had not come to a faith in Christ and so forth, but had not necessarily rebelled against their upbringing. And, and they had a, their sin nature was still keeping them from Christ, but they weren't particularly demonized. When you become a born-again Christian, you become the, the possession of God. The Bible says you are bought with a price, glorify God in your bodies. But when you become owned by God, that is, you are a born-again Christian, you are uh, going through the covenantal transactions of, of joining God's uh, community of believers, his family through water baptism, baptism in the spirit. Uh, you're starting to member yourself covenantally with a church and take communion and be discipled and, and enjoy the three aspects of the mission of every church, the loving of God and the mission to God, the mission to one another and the mission to the outside world. When these things begin in your life, you are owned by God. 
which is pretty comforting if you really think about it because he's very jealous about his possessions. <laughs> and uh, you think uh, if you've ever encountered the wrath of a father that said, don't mess with my kids, it's nothing compared to what God is. He's, he's jealous for your salvation. He's protecting you at all times. We pointed out in the first meaning that most people in this room have probably been saved by God's angels had their life saved from car accidents or any number of incidents, probably more than once without your knowing it. So um, this is really important to make sure you understand. This is, by the way, we, there's three books we recommend on deliverance, we're at, which are at the end of uh, chapter 3G. I put... I, uh, and the one called They Shall Expel Demons, is, is Derek Prince was, a, was a, what's called a fellow, which is the British equivalent of a doctorate in ancient languages. And he, he actually is the first one who explained this argument to me, although mostly on his CDs and stuff. I only met him one time. But um, it was a very brief encounter. But in any case, um, what's important to see is you can be a born-again Christian and you can actually still have all kinds of demonic spirits. They don't own you, and you have taken the first step, as we're going to see here in a minute, to breaking their legal rights to be there. But they do not automatically leave unless you uh, take advantage of your other legal responsibilities and rights and duties so that they and, and you command them to leave. So um, this, this is a very important concept because actually even the English standard gets it wrong. The, the truth is you can be indwelt by demons. People, are, people try to get, people intuitively know that this demon possession thing is not quite right. So they, they will say, well, maybe it's demon oppression. But th what they're doing is basically trying to rationalize in a, without, really getting the right equipment, which is proper big biblical definitions of terms. You study this out in the Greek for yourself. I've studied it out hundreds of times. Diamonazai means that people who actually had a demon indwelling them and influencing them. And frankly, only a Christian who's owned by God has the legal rights to, to have that removed from them. That's why the Syrophoenician woman, remember Jesus didn't operate out of his omniscience. He chose to lay that aside, Philippians 2, 1 through 5. So when the Syrophoenician woman comes to him and says, God, uh, uh, Lord, can you help my daughter who is cruelly, Young's literal translation says, demonized, uh, as it should. Uh, he says, woman, uh, it's not good to ch take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. And, and he's not using dog like a modern sense that she was an unattractive woman. She may have been beautiful. The scripture doesn't tell us. He's saying she's, out, that she's outside the covenant people of God. But Jesus himself had defined belonging to God in John 8 as the, son, the true sons of Abraham were those who were believing in him. So when he says that, unbeknownst to him until her response, the father had already given her faith by the Holy Spirit in Jesus. Jesus didn't realize that until because he's not operating out of his omniscience until she responds and says, 
uh, Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the master's table. Basically saying she knows God is good, she knows Jesus is good, and she knows Jesus came to set the captives free and destroy the works of the devil, and she's going to get in on it. And uh, she's not taking no for an answer. Encourage you when it comes to, to righteousness. So many people don't take no for an answer for so many ungodly things. And then they, they fold at the first uh, resistance to breaking through. Violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. Pursue the Lord with all, all dispatch. And uh, so she, anyway, she um, says, Lord, great, you know, uh, even the dogs get to eat the, from the master's table. And, she, and he says, woman, great is your faith, which he has defined in several places as being a true daughter of Abraham. In fact, he regularly confronted the Pharisees and scribes and said he understood that his the people of God would include the Gentiles, those who God the Father by the Holy Spirit gave faith in him. And he said, many will come from east and west at the, in, at the table, but those who are the true, the, the son, the biological sons of Abraham will be cast out. So he, re, he understands she's truly a daughter of God. Therefore, she meets the legal requirements to have her request granted, and he cast the demons out of her daughter. Now that's very important to, to get that right. Now, very very few do, but it's it's if you study it thoroughly, you, that you'll come to there. Um, that that is a, it is so important to understand. If you understand anything about what Jesus did and the apostles, don't ever use the word demon possessed again, because it's just not it's just not a good word. It's it just doesn't happen. You're either own you're, you become owned by God when you become a Christian, and therefore no evil has any rights to you uh, as as you begin to walk in that and enforce it. Hope I hope you see that. Um, flesh or demons is the second thing I want to say, but I'm spending some time on this uh, this demon thing because not a lot of people have a lot of experience. I was fortunate, frankly, I was so involved in in the cult and and drugs and witchcraft and everything like that. I, I was very fortunate to get born again with uh, parents who had got born again before me and people from all, all over Northeast Ohio pastors were sending people to my parents to get demons cast at them because my parents had an amazing deliverance ministry. And so I, I not only received that ministry when I was 17, but I started to do it. And when it gets down to some spiritual things, Working back and forth between experience and the Bible, always making sure your experience is grounded in Scripture, but but not allowing Scripture to be an excuse for a sub-biblical experience, but in fact, saying to, saying to Scripture, how come we're not there? Jesus made it clear that he was a model and a pattern. There is just no way to read the New Testament honestly and not expect that Jesus meant for his, his disciples throughout the ages to continue his ministry like it looked in him. And it did in the book of Acts, and it has done so in many centuries and many movements of God throughout the centuries. So now this concept of flesh or demons is very important. Um, many Christians don't believe in the reality of demons, so they think everything is their sin nature. As I said, the three insurmountable in enemies are inextricably intertwined. Demons always have some kind of root in your sin nature. 
Um, I don't know why it works. It's a thing I call solical fiber. Some people's walls get broken down. Some people have a frightening experience and fright just gets a, a hold in their life that's just beyond rational and beyond natural. Some people have that with lust. I've actually known a couple guys, pretty godly guys, who uh, even be, uh, before they were Christians and so forth, the first time they were exposed to pornography, they said, why would you diminish a woman like that and, and treat her as an object and so forth? And they just, somehow they were never tempted by it. I've known other guys who the first time they looked at it, it something got a, got a hold of their life so bad, it, it drove them for years. And, the, un, you know, the mysteries of why some people have better walls here or there in, of protection I, is a thing I call solical fiber, and it's a little bit of a mystery. But, um, they're real, you know, again, demonic spirits always work in conjunction with the sin nature, and you cannot expect that you're just going to get a demon cast out, but not have to crucify the flesh. Um, how, you know, so... That's just kind of important to understand, and I wish I could do more with uh, Hebrews 5.14 says that solid food is for the mature who through practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil, and that's both a Holy Spirit sense using the gifts of the Holy Spirit called discernment of spirits, and frankly, just biblical knowledge and experience of seeing how demons are causing this or that person to behave. It's not always spiritual or supernatural, in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, uh, in, the, in the context of talking about spiritual warfare, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's nothing that's going to cause you not have to crucify your flesh. And, and um, you know, the best defense in the Christian life is, is, truly, the, is truly an offense. The best thing you can do, to, to grow in truth and, and break the chains of darkness in your life is fall in love with Jesus, love to worship him, love to read his word, love to fellowship with his people, love him and love him and love him more. And pray to God that all of us have, because of sin, have intimacy issues. We all have places where we want to keep a little distance from God here, there, or the other thing. And I, I frankly think if we let God as fully into our life as we need to, we probably couldn't handle it in this uh, human body and we'd die. I, am, I, I had an experience myself once, and lots of people testify this kind of experience where I was on a longer fast and I was in the presence of God and God's spirit was overwhelming me, and I actually had to say, Lord, I can't take this, this is too much, back off, and then and he did, and then I really regretted that I said that, because it was awesome, but I, I think, you know, you if, if anyone really, you know, Moses was told if anyone uh, saw God fully, he couldn't live, uh, it, you know, but go as far with intimacy of with God and love of God and enjoyment of God and be enraptured in his spirit and his presence, love to worship him, love his word. That's the best way to turn on the lights. And light overcomes darkness. I do believe that if you, if you take up all the things about spiritual warfare, you have to take into account John 8, 31 through 34, where Jesus says, if anyone is, um, abides in my word and my word abides in him, 
then he will be truly my disciple and he'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I really think this happens. I think sometimes when there's demonic presences and evil things in our life, because there's also a thing called iniquity and, and sin and iniquity are actually a power. And I think through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the presence of the Lord, God just breaks the chains of iniquity in his presence many times. And I think that also happens with demonic spirits. Um, I have several testimonies myself, but I don't have enough time to, to say them. But um, I think perfect love cast out all fear. And uh, frankly, the although I went through deliverance several times as a young Christian, and though it was a permanent life changer, I would say in terms of some of the fears that I struggled with, fear, fears of dark and so forth, the Bible says that the one who fears is not perfected in love because perfect love casts out all fear. I would just say as I grew in love with the Lord, without realizing it, fears left my life. So, uh, you know, the, uh, we want to not be that on fire for God or that radical for God, but I would encourage you to, to uh, go for it because part of the enjoyment of God is, is uh, bondages of iniquity leave your life. And sometimes you don't even realize when they leave. They're just not there anymore. Sometimes you see the results later. All right, so point five, still on 930's outline, the, the legalities of, of spiritual warfare. We've already talked about the first legality. When you become a child of God, you have the rights to all the inheritance of God's children. And I'm not talking about it in some, a lot of the uh, prosperity gospel and things that, you know, exercise your authority and your rights as believers tend to be a little selfish and narcissistic in our culture, uh, possibly, possibly because of TV, Christianity. TV has a tendency to ruin everything. But so I'm not talking about in some narcissistic uh, way so you can get more of, of in a, some selfish way to have a nicer car or whatever. I'm talking about getting more because Jesus said uh, to love others as you love yourself. And there's, there's uh, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the one who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. Oikodemao means to build up your house. The more you're built up in the things of God, the more you have to give. And Jesus said, freely uh, give. One of the things that happens in ministry is you're so tempted to be running around all the time, organizing this, getting, getting all the people who didn't show up that said they'd show up to, uh, <laughs> and, and all the, you know, and so forth. You're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And really, you need to get alone with God and spend time in his word and get empowered and the temptation always in service of God and ministry is to, is to uh, cut down more than you should on spending time in his presence. So with that understand, let's look at the legalities, the darkness versus light. Um, with this, I, wa I, wa I want to just say this. Um, by the grace of God, the Lord has caused us to help a number of people in the past couple of years that were living a double life. And it's living a double life is kind of so much more common than it than it ought to be that I would encourage you don't get held back by living a double life. Don't have one public persona and who you're, you know, like in the church in Revelation 2, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, I know your reputation that you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Sometimes you can seem on fire, 
You can seem like the person who reads so much or serves so much or whatever, and frankly, uh, you, your private life has a different standard. Don't let things of darkness hold you back from Christ. So let's get into some of these legalities. Acts 19, 18 through 20, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They were believers first, then they confessed and divulged their practices. They brought them to the light, in other words. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And look, look at the result. This is really important. This is, we're not, you know, like encouraging us to become a body of Christians who really walk in holiness and integrity and love and, and righteousness just so, I don't know, so you don't sin as much. It's so, that it, because this is what's the result when, when this happens. Uh, where was I? Um, so the Lord, word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's word won't go out from us and prevail if we're not living, if we're living a double life. Study the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 5 or 7, I think it's 7. And, uh, you know, he, he basically took things under the ban and hid it. We all have this tendency. Look at this thing. They confessed and divulged their practice. The word confess is the Greek word homo. In homo or homo, the prefix means the same. Lagos or legao means to say the same. To confess your sins is simply to say the same things God says about them which means you give up blame-shifting, excuse-making, and rationalizing, and you bring them to the light, to a, to a qualified person. One of the major errors of Protestantism is that you only need to confess your sins before God. I don't believe you should confess every sin because nobody has time for that. <laughs> but uh, what I think you need to do is confess those kinds of things which are holding you back from Christ. Roots of bitterness, uh, un, you know, uh, sins that what they call besetting sins that you're constantly falling into. I don't want to hear about every time you lust. Nobody would have time for that. Uh, but but if it's a ma if there's some kind of major problem in your sexual behavior, get it out in the open and, and get a qualified person to. You know, if you're a young lady, talk to uh, my wife or one of the other elder ladies of the church, like Emily. Uh, if you're a young man, uh, talk to Greg or John or Jason. And um, and have them pray with you and pray over you and so forth. Don't get held back by not confessing because, again, the result is that, um, again, that the word of the Lord continued to decrease and grow. And, uh, and you're, you're actually holding back the whole purposes of God for your whole fellowship when you do that. Not to put too much on you, but you, you, you can make a decision just to not do that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 14.2 says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifesting of truth, manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So... The word renounce means to disown, to disavow. It's a legal term. It means to be divorced from it. It means in computer terms that you don't have any shared files and you have no connectivity. 
You don't have any way to text or email or, or, or social media, that spirit or that thing. That means, you know, the first thing they teach you in counseling, like if you're counseling someone who had an affair or how to overcome it, you got to get rid of every memory, every memento, every positive thought. Uh, you, you, when you're breaking sin, you have to disown it. You know, uh, fortunately, my one brother has become a Christian, so he's forgiven me now. But when I became a Christian, I had a lot of music that, let's just say, wasn't godly. <laughs> and uh, I burned it all. I didn't get nitpicky about like, well, this one's just kind of natural. It's not too demanding. I just said, you know what? I just need to get out of that culture. I need to get out of that world. I, I've watched people being held back from their, by their music for years. I, I just don't get it because there's so many good kinds of music out there that besides Christian worship music, there's classical music or whatever that you, you know, but it, it's kind of like uh, how they do this, catch these little monkeys, you know, they, they put a, a piece of apple or something in the, in the jar. And when he has his hand around the apple, he can't pull his hand out, but he wants that apple so much he won't get, give up the apple to get free. So many Christians do that for like years. And they're just missing out. God, you know what? Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. God is not promising you a life of no trials or difficulties. In fact, the Christian life, I think they increase. <laughs> but he's, <laughs> but, but he's call, calling you to a life where he gives you grace to make every lemon a lemonade, you know, so to speak, or any, any silly saying like that. Uh, really, uh, you can get bitter or better. James 1, 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various temptations and testings of your faith. Every temptation is, a, is a, an opportunity to throw your, say, Lord, my sins are insurmountable, my lust are insurmountable, my fears are insurmountable, whatever it is you're dealing with, my anger management issue. And so I will not only cry out to your grace, but I will take the exit you're giving me and I will obey and I will become a new person. You know what? People assume that people are like they were 20 years ago or whatever. You know what? You can do the work to become a new creature in Christ Jesus every day. And trials are one of the great blessings. So are demons. You need them. You need to hate them, you need to overcome them, you need to stomp them. So we, uh, lastly is the word expulsion, drive out, expel. Uh, so uh, see the, see the uh, you know, the, the, when we're talking about, uh, we're at the bottom point of, of the first outline, point D, and uh, cast out, drive out, expel, uh, see the geography of spiritual warfare above. When you're talking heavenly places, again, I said this in the first meeting, I don't go binding like the murderous spirits that are over ISIS and these kind of things. Um, honestly, I'm not, I don't usually like my own messages very well. Last week, I actually liked the message, both 9.30 and 10.30, about intercession. And uh, honestly, the first kind of prayer you need to apply is intercession. Because in intercession, you're never getting in over your head. You're actually admitting the gospel. You're admitting we have sinned. You're, admitting, you're identifying with whoever you're praying for to the point where you're no longer self-righteous, holier-than-thou, uh, 
seeing yourself as better than them. Intercessory prayer will build, will cause you to become more Christ-like than any other kind of prayer. But in terms of spiritual warfare, we do need to do it. And uh, some keys are do it corporately. If I'm, de- if I'm uh, praying about some international or national problem, you know, like years ago, we were doing a lot of praying about the elections in Kenya. Um, you know, right now, it seems like we're, uh, every Friday night, it seems to be a real burden of the prayer. I mean, lots of people are praying for per- persecuted Christians all over the world. And uh, if I'm doing that, I'm first interceding. Secondly, if I do spiritual warfare, I, I say things like, along with all the other saints throughout the world that you're causing to rise up, we bind the spirit of this murder or that. And so that I'm not uh, being all cocky. A lot of people who have a lot of problems is because, frankly, they got too cocky in spiritual warfare. Don't, don't overstep your bounds. But don't be afraid of the devil either. Um, I wish I could teach more on that. There's not enough time to, to teach on that. But heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think I'm just going to close by foreshadowing uh, 3G, which will probably be next week's outline. So either leave them with Jason or, uh, or bring them back if you can. We'll print less of them next week. And... Uh, Yeah, what we're going to basically do uh, in the in next week is look at the schemes of Satan and his minions, uh, and we're going to basically help you understand that every s- tactic of Satan. When we're going to look at two Greek words that have to do with schemes and tactics, the enemy has tactics. We're not called to know a lot about Satan. Jesus even re- uh, commends a church in Revelation because they have not known the esoteric deep things of Satan like the mystery cults of Rome and so forth. There are some young, young Christians that discover the reality of these things and they get all weirded out. You know, the symbol on the jiffy jar is Satan, you know, <laughs> you know, and, you know. And uh, I saw a demon in my cookie cereal, or I call it the demon behind the toaster syndrome. We're, you know, we're not talking about that. Uh, But what we are, we do want to see is that all of Satan's tactics come out of his nature. So he's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. He divides kingdoms. Uh, the one I have the most burden for right now is I, I just I know of quite a few cases of people who are actually holding themselves back in the Lord because they have a root of bitterness or unforgiveness toward people God wants to use in their life. Um, that's a sad thing to me. So we're going to look at Satan's schemes and tactics next week, the na- uh, and they're going to come out. We're going to call it the nature of the enemy because they come out of the nature of the enemy. Amen. <clears throat>